0: Culture Map presents What's Eric, Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler.
1: Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at the local restaurant scene. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Joining me this week is my good friend Michael Fulmer. We know you as a restaurant industry lifer. I think that's a pretty fair description. A former My Table Service Person of the Year award winner. (laughs) Okay. And most importantly, the co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. Mike, uh, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Great to be back. Really appreciate uh, the invite. Let's, uh, Let's dive into the news of the week. You know, the big news in Houston food right now is that Houston Restaurant Weeks is back. It starts... August 1st, but the website HoustonRestaurantWeeks.com is live with menus. I have a look at some of the newcomers this year for an article on Culture Map. It's a good group. You know, I think what people like about HRW so much is that it's the opportunity to try some of the best restaurants in the city at a fixed price. So you kind of know what you're committing to financially. And that knowledge that you're doing some good for the food bank. Every $35 menu raises five bucks for the food bank. Every $45 menu raises $7 for the food bank. You know, you eat well, you do some good. The restaurants stay busy during a slow month. It's a, it's a great setup for everybody.
0: Yeah, it's pretty solid. I mean, for me, I've already got reservations at Zoshi. Uh, which I've been to, I've dined at already, but I'm, I'm eager. Some restaurants, particularly when I think they're new to HRW, they really want to make a good impression because it's, it's such a large field now. And so they really kind of bring their A game.
1: Yeah, and Sochi, Hugo Ortega's, uh, Oaxacan restaurant downtown, three different $45 dinner menus. There's a, a corn-themed one. There's like a kind of Oaxacan, Mexican-themed one. There's one with mezcal pairings, and then there's a $35 dinner menu that's vegetarian, and they're also doing lunch. So a lot of ways to go to Sochi. Did you, did you look over the menu? Do you kind of already know what you want to order when you go there? Well,
0: for me, all it took was to see mole a couple times. Uh, you know, mole is such a complicated and widely varied and interpreted uh, sauce. And, you know, his Oax- Oaxacan roots uh, his acumen with that is incredible. And, you know, I went there before and tried the mole sampler. And so I just, you know, bring more, bring it on. Uh, I'm really eager to, to try it.
1: Yeah. Uh, some of the other newcomers that I'm really excited about cultivare, and that's a $35 menu. You get your choice of either two snacks to start or one salad. And then the entree choices are the pizza, the pasta. You've got some, some hearty mains and dessert. So you can go and get, you know, the chicken wings, which are kind of a a known dish for them, the black pepper spaghetti, which is something that I've called one of the best dishes in Houston. And then their wood roasted crustado, which is kind of their signature dessert, for thirty five bucks. Now, of course, cultivare still doesn't take reservations, so you're gonna be waiting, go early, go late, you know, Friday, Saturday is always crowded, but that's a good way to experience a restaurant that I consider to be one of the best in Houston. At a very reasonable
0: price. Yeah. And they've got the bar. You could have a drink beforehand. You know, if you go in knowing that, you know, there's the possibility you will be waiting or more than likely will, uh, you make it an event. And it's, uh, is it worth it? Absolutely. They just, they just do a great job there.
1: Yeah. And then the other one that I just want to highlight, obviously you can read the article to get the full list, but Patente, you know, Danny Trace left Brennan's. Now he's there. That's Jim Crane's Italian restaurant. It's right next to Minute Maid Park. Again, that's a fine dining setting. The prices are a little higher. So, 45 bucks is a very affordable way, relatively speaking, to see what Danny's up to and check out Patente.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that too. I have yet to, to go there. And, uh, you know, Italian for me, growing up, having originally grown up in the Northeast where. You know, accessible and well priced, you know, corner places are ubiquitous there. It's like what Tex Mex is here, you know. Uh, If you went to, uh, I don't know, uh, if you went to like Philadelphia and they had an expensive Tex Mex place, you would just scratch your head and go, what? Um, But Italian, of course, is very, uh, has great
1: range. And uh, I'm excited to see what they're doing there. So I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. And you've worked at restaurants that have participated in HRW in the past. What's that like? Is it excitement about? being really busy or is it dread or is there a mixture of both
0: I I think it really depends on where you are um you know originally it was Houston Restaurant Week you know you did it for a week you know you were you're busy from the time you pretty much open up till you end um your PPA that's your per person average goes way down uh and you also get people who are not the normal diners and uh and, and thus you know that that can present its own issues so, but one week was fine, but then, when it started to expand, you know there was people I work with who really kind of dreaded that uh, but ultimately, it keeps the restaurant it 's really taking on a life of uh, a real event and this is Houston, August. If you can get out of town for a week or two, you usually can so if you 're still here, you know the restaurants all go down in business uh, so it really fills up a lot of these places and and does well for you know does a good thing for the
1: houston food bank and so that's a win-win right i mean it raised two million dollars last year for the food bank there's about 250 restaurants already on the list more coming 250 individual locations more coming between now and the end of the month so by the time august 1st rolls around there could be as many as 275 and again i mean just a great way to try the cuisine at a bunch of different restaurants and do some good for the community. Yeah,
0: and the, the steakhouse is uh, Pappas Brothers. I, I saw has come back. I think after what four years away? Yeah, back
1: for the first time since 2012, and with a, a no nonsense menu. I mean, you know, you can get. I want to say it's a you know dry aged New York strip at that forty five dollar price point. No supplement. Plus, I think there's a lobster choice. Yeah, that's what they
0: did four years ago. I scratched my head going. <laughs> How, uh, like, are they just killing themselves on that? But it, it's a fantastic menu, and, of course, the quality there is is always fantastic.
1: Yeah, and when so many restaurants, it's steakhouses, especially the choices, of filet, six-ounce, eight-ounce, maybe even a 10-ounce, and that's it. No strip, no ribeye. You know, if you're a beef lover, you know, those are the steaks you like to eat, not so much filet. It's great to see Pappas Brothers really committing to the event and bringing a menu that will keep both locations busy. All month, I'm sure.
0: I think the advent of bringing in the $45 menu, uh, because for higher end places, very high food cost, you know, they it it didn't make sense for them to do it. They lost money doing it, Uh, and that enables them to still give out a good product uh, and still give the donation to the charity and still maybe make just a few dollars uh, and and do a good PR thing.
1: Yeah, that $45 menu. I mean, when you think about, you pair it with a glass of wine, you tax, you tip, you're at, you know, you probably are tacking on another. 20 bucks or so. So it's a little bit of a splurge, but it makes for a nice date night. And again, the restaurants that step up to that level, B&B Butchers, Tony's, you know, those are great restaurants where any meal there would probably be more than that regularly.
0: Yeah. Going to the $45 level, either 45 or 35 and also allowing supplements um, so that, you know, the restaurants can still say, Hey, you know, this is really what we're about. This is giving you a nice menu, but you really want to see what we're
1: about. For just a few dollars more, you can really kind of take it to the next level of, of who we are. Yeah, I, you know, certainly Tony's participates every year. There's a supplement that lets you get a souffle for dessert. If you're going to Tony's, you got to get souffle. Like whatever that, whatever that costs, it's worth it. Uh, Robards in the Woodlands has a really nice regular menu for their steaks. But for another $18, you can get Texas Wagyu steak. Wow! Yeah. So, I mean, that steak is probably worth the $63 that you're paying for the full three course menu. So search through the menus, start with my guide on culture map, search through the menus. And obviously I will have much more HRW related coverage on culture map all month, but let's move on. I just want to hit this briefly. Now ramen closed in rice village. This is a restaurant that only opened in December, had a short run. And the thing that was most noticeable about it was that most people did not like it. The Yelp reviews were pretty bad. The commentary on the Ramen and Common Facebook forum was pretty brutal. So no mourning for the loss of now Ramen, but we are in an interesting moment for Rice Village. Hop opened, Shake Shack is coming. longtime restaurants like Kubo's, Bombay Brasserie. Yum Yum Cha are all gone. So, Fulmer, what, I'm, what I want to know from you is what do you want to see in Rice Village? What's your kind of assessment of where Rice Village is as a dining destination? Well, it, it's exciting to see new
0: places coming in there. Uh, for me, and I don't even live that far away from it, the biggest issue for me is it is uh, parking there is just and traffic is kind of a nightmare all the time because uh, it's lots of four-way stops, it's very congested, and you know they built that big parking, you know, garage. I guess about ten years ago, and that helped a lot. Uh, but still, some of the smaller places, smaller shops. All it takes is one person saying, "I want to wait to turn in," and everything just c-
1: congests and gets, you know, to be a real drag. Yeah, the other thing that's helped a little bit is those parking meters. Not that paying for parking is ever a pleasant experience, but it does promote more turnover, or it keeps the you know, I'm not going to accuse employees at any individual store of taking up all the free street parking. But if that had maybe been happening, it doesn't happen anymore. So it feels like there are more street spots available. Now you just have to pay for it. Yeah. And to me, it's, I'm willing to do that because it's nothing
0: huge. It's not crazy. It's not like New York prices. So that's fine.
1: You know, it's an interesting dining area. You know, it, it doesn't have a sushi restaurant. Obviously, there's lots of sushi options close by. Azuma across the freeway. Go to Kata Robata, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't have barbecue. It doesn't have. It doesn't have pizza anymore. I don't even think right because. Uh, uh,
0: you have um, what's the Italian place? Uh, the Clark- Prago. Yeah, uh,
1: Prago and the Clark Cooper concept. Yeah, Copa. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Copa. Copa does pizza, but it, but it doesn't have that kind of casual environment. It's it's about to have two really famous national burger chains, so it doesn't need that. But is there a specific style of cuisine that you think Rice Village is lacking, something that would work well with all the bars in that area that are open late?
0: No, I I think what I like about it is that you've got Turkish, you've got, you know, the deli Khan, you've got Southern food, you've got Italian. It's it's a nice mix, mix mash, uh, if you will, there. So I hate to say, like, well, one cuisine would make them complete, you know, uh... Like, barbecue wouldn't make sense there, I don't think, at all, given, you know, the, how everything works in there. Uh, so, I, you know, I like seeing how the market, how it rolls out. I miss Con's Deli, uh, you know, that, you know, after Dad sold it to the kids, it just really went down, and now it's gone. But now you've got Helen there, and Helen is just, just wonderful.
1: Yeah, I got the chance to try Helen's new menu. You know, that restaurant, you know, two years into their run is still just doing really great, and it was... It was nice to kind of reacquaint myself with with that restaurant. But yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see what's next for Rice Village. It, it feels like it's probably going to be something with a big name. I think a little bit of turnover is a good
0: thing. Um, you know, when restaurants don't make it, I'm always sad to see them go. But real estate prices being what they are, it makes a big difference to a restaurant owner when he can get something that's either turnkey or something close to being a turnkey establishment, meaning... Uh, not having to spend so much on build out and, and, and that kind of permitting. Uh, And so you see, like I said, Helen's a great example of that.
1: Right. And then, you know, the other closing of the week is that the original Beavers location at Washington or just off of Washington on Decatur street at Sawyer announced that it's going to close for the summer. And the only hint about what's coming is to quote, watch for smoke signals. Certainly Arash Karat, the chef who took over Beaver's Westheimer and is now in charge of the original location too, has made barbecue a priority there. It's becoming a barbecue destination in addition to all the kind of classic Texas comfort food that Beavers has been known for for ten years. Uh, I know you ate at Beavers recently. Kind of, what were your impressions, and what do you think? Uh, what do you think its prospects are for? Moving in a, maybe a more barbecue oriented direction. Well,
0: having previously eaten at the original Beavers location, I had never, and I'm going to underline, never had good barbecue, even, you know, barely palatable. It was just, it was really awful. And so when the West... Tough but fair. Yeah. just, that's the way it was. And I go multiple times. I try everything. uh, And it just, it was bad barbecue. Uh, and so, But I knew Arash. Arash had worked with several different people, several different operations, uh, really honing his skills. And so when he was brought into the Beavers West, I think that boded well. And I've eaten there several times. And not only does he have great skill, but he also realizes he's like on a path. He's not like, oh, I figured it out. He's constantly looking to improve his technique, to improve his product, to try different things. Um, and... The word I have is that they were looking to standardize both places. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that kind of actually led to the departure of the chef who had been working at the original Beavers location. And I think that's what they need to do. They need to standardize it because they're standardizing quality as opposed to having one that's got bad rep and
1: mediocre and one that's excellent. Yeah, and we'll see what becomes of Beavers, but slated to reopen in mid-September. Arash is a really talented guy. He seems like he's got a good grip on what he wants Beavers to be. He has the support of ownership. They've committed to upgrading the equipment at the original location to match the smoker and some of the other equipment at the at the new location. So, definitely positive things ahead, you know. And I I've seen some speculation on social media that it's it's not coming back. I don't I don't have any reason to think that's the case. Everything that I've heard from the the Beavers camp is that it'll be back. We just need to sit tight for about six weeks. Yeah, I'm I'm eager to see that happen. All right, and then the other news: Medici Pizza, which uh, is a California-based chain with almost 100 locations, they have a they have an outpost in Katy. It's coming inside the loop. It's coming to Upper Kirby. The uh, I think it's the Great Nations Bank Building. It's it's right where the new Carins has opened up. It'll open the middle of August. I've seen some conversation on Facebook. Someone called Neapolitan Pizza widely disliked based on the uh, comments of uh, a very vocal, I would hope very small minority on Facebook. I like Neapolitan Pizza. Do you like Neapolitan Pizza? No, I love it. (laughs) I I mean, I remember
0: uh, there was an old food blogger who, uh, uh, you know, Misha, and I remember him extolling the virtues of a place called Kesta. In the uh, Lower Village, uh, just outside Little Italy in uh, Manhattan, and so I made a point of going there, and I, you know, I was shocked that I got my pizza. You know, two minutes after I ordered it, and the quality of it was just so good—the uh, crust, the ingredients, uh, a little bit of char on the crust—it it just is fantastic, and. I, you know, I realized seeing these other Neapolitan places come around, uh, not all of them get the full certification, but you know, that's okay. They're, they're really kind of right there on the edge of, of doing everything right uh, is fantastic. Pizarro's uh, really, wow.
1: They just really bring a great quality product to uh, the Houston area. Right. And and I've been a fan of Cane Rosso and, and I think sometimes people get confused that the, the crust soggy is the wrong word, but it's not crispy. And I think that can be, a bit of a turnoff from some people, but the flavors of a Neapolitan pie are just so vibrant. And I like that chewy dough. I just, I just don't understand how anyone could say that it's widely disliked or, or even what, what people don't like about it. And so I've been to the Medici and Katie. It's really nice in a sense. Cause they, you kind of do it Chipotle style. You walk the line, you can see the toppings, you can pick what goes on your pizza, or you can go with a, a preset set of ingredients. They have salads. They have small plates. It's a good looking space. It's a nice dining experience. It's very affordable. And I think it's going to be a very welcome addition to an area that's already seen a lot of good dining options with more to come.
0: Yeah. I mean, pizza does have a, a bit of variety to it, uh, although most people are, are have usual New York style, uh, you know, in some cases, maybe some of these people, they've only had takeout. That's what they've done. Uh, You know, when you get to a place that has wood burning oven or has a real commitment to a quality pizza, like Pass and Provisions is not a pizza place, but you know, when they do pizzas, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah. And that's not really, it's a wood fired pizza, but it's not really a Neapolitan pizza. No, it's It's a little thicker. But again, there's so much variation to say, I don't like this style of pizza or I don't like that style of pizza. Yeah, I'm careful
0: when people say they speak for the majority
1: too. Yeah. Yeah. That's always, that's always difficult. And, and the, you know, the lesson, as always, is not to, get, not to let a few snarkier reviews on any social media platform, whether it's, you know, Facebook or Yelp or what have you, ruin your overall impression of a whole genre that's really beloved around the world. You're listening to What's Eric Eating. So, for the restaurants of the week, you and I had brunch this weekend, not at a new restaurant, but a, a restaurant with a brand new direction. Lowbrow and Montrose has been around for a couple of years, but John Shealy, the former chef-owner of Mockingbird Bistro, has taken it over, uh, remodeled the place. He has decreeked it. I don't, I don't know if that's how John would describe it, but that's how I describe it. He's taken all the, the creek group signs off the walls and cleaned up the interior, the, renovated the patio a little bit. And more importantly, he's put in a, a new menu that's sort of a, a casual, more approachable version of the bistro cuisine that he served at Mockingbird for over 15 years. What did you think of our brunch at the new Laurel? You know, I'm always excited when a
0: restaurant tries to rebrand or reinvent itself, you know, without closing, changing names, changing ownership. And and that's what they've done, uh bringing in John and all my experience there is everything was positive. I mean, the place was packed. Uh, but they handled the crowd very well. The service was excellent. And then most importantly, the food was excellent.
1: Yeah, and we went on a Saturday, but it had that Sunday fun day vibe. Big groups of friends, mimosas hitting the tables, everybody having a good time. Yeah, people eating, people drinking,
0: and also, you know, his presentation. He I think that's another big thing he brings to the game is his quality of presentation. And it doesn't need to be an expensive dish. I, I think we had uh what, bagels with locks. Uh yeah, with the marble rye and the Texas shaped. Yeah, the Texas shaped board, board. Yeah. you know, just little things like that made it a really great experience.
1: Yeah, and the servers were friendly and they you know, we were looking at the other tables around us. Dog friendly too. Dog friendly too. Food was coming out quickly. Everybody seemed to be having a good time. Place was packed, like you said. How were your biscuits and eggs? I thought that looked that dish looked very good. You know, biscuits, as we
0: all know, it, it rather simple dish, but easy to go wrong. Uh, they can be dry or heavy, and it was neither. It had great flavor, great texture, uh, held the eggs
1: well, and uh, I was very pleased with it. Yeah, and I had wings and waffle with uh, the wings were in a, and a sweet and spicy honey sriracha glaze, good crunch, nicely cooked. The waffle was thick, yeasty in a good way, uh, very satisfying. And I had a cucumber Bloody Mary that, you know, didn't taste like the Bloody Mary mix came out of a, a bottle. So that's always a yeah we positive had, step. And it had a it had a, a nicely boozy edge to it that set me up for a perfect afternoon. Now we had drinks. We
0: had we shared an appetizer and an entree each, and it, you know it was less than twenty dollars a person, and that that's
1: great. Yeah. And then you, finally, our second restaurant of the week, you, you finally got to try a place that I've been banging the drum for since November. Noby's, a little restaurant, took over from Au Petit Paris on Colquitt just off of Shepherd. I don't know. I, I never know whether that's technically Montrose or not Montrose. It's always, you know, you try to identify these neighborhoods. People always get mad at you for one thing or another. But certainly a restaurant that I've been to several times and really enjoyed. I was back there for dinner last week, but, but you who had never been to Noby's, what was, what was your impression of your brunch there?
0: Yeah. I've been wanting to go for dinner. haven't been able to to fit that in. Uh, so we were able to do brunch and yeah, it's, it's on the East side of shepherd that makes it mantra. All right. But that's just splitting hairs. Um, you know, when you see places that that whole farm to table, they don't even say it anymore because it's become almost like a horrible cliche. Um, but you could see that he is very committed to, if you look at his website, you know, sourcing from local and, and Texas places, uh, you know, the dairy Maid, strew branch, things like that. And like when the eggs came out, you know, when you're getting farm fresh eggs, the, the yolk is orange. Okay. It's it, these were orange. They were fantastic. And so he's walking the walk, you know, as well as talking the talk, um, all the little things we had, just we had a little compachana, and it was you know, fifteen dollars. It was so well balanced with the the shellfish, the tomatoes, not too sweet, just the right amount of acid. This is something clearly he are indeed very well. Um, service was fine too, and and I'm eager to go back. They do a big ribeye with duck eggs. Uh, you know that is clearly a shared event. It's uh, they, also a hundred dollars, so it's yeah. definitely a commitment. Yeah, there was a table next to us, uh, four of them sharing that and sharing the. The bagel dish, which is forty dollars, so that's for four. And like, I'm like, what a perfect way to go! Get two large shared items and and go from there. Uh, you know, the biscuit they do there is all butter biscuit, and that was really good.
1: Yeah, and I will say, I had dinner there last week for the first time in a little while. He was running a pasta special, a housemade squid ink pasta with uni butter and king crab on top, thirty one dollars worth absolutely every penny i i don't pasta dishes over about 18 bucks make me kind of nervous but this i mean the flavor of the king crab was so fresh and so sweet pasta was properly al dente the uni butter was just decadent what a great dish and you know everything else about that restaurant open till 11 during the week open till midnight on the weekends very i mean their liquor prices are good their wine list is interesting their beer list is fun
0: yeah, they don't, they're not doing a buy-the-numbers wine list. Uh, you won't see fam- a lot of familiar names, uh, but you will see familiar varietals, you know, the grapes itself, and it's, the price point is excellent. I mean, I think there's only a couple of wines over $100, so it's all very accessible. And yeah. like most places, I think, you know, if you have a wine, you don't like it, then get something else. They'll, they'll let you get something else.
1: Yeah, and the chef-owner, Martin Steyer, he, he grew up in Houston, but most of his experience was from Chicago, he worked for a couple of different Michelin-starred restaurants there. That kind of training, that kind of culinary perspective uh, in a casual environment, in a room that feels good at an affordable price point. There's not that many restaurants in Houston like it and I think that's that's what's kept me coming back over and over since it opened and a place that I think is worth checking out.
0: Yeah, both uh, me and my dining companion were both we're like we're very eager to go back and I can't recommend it enough.
1: Alright, that's it for the restaurants of the week. We will be right back with our interview with Mike Raymond, the owner of Reserve 101. Stick around.
0: You're listening to What's Eric Eating?
1: Our interview this week is brought to you by our sponsor, Eighth Wonder Brewery, a locally owned brewery, right located right in East downtown. What I like about Eighth Wonder is that they pay homage to Houston's history, the Astrodome, the Eighth Wonder of the World, their beers are Houston focused. They're designed for the local palate and they like the brand itself. They pay tribute to Houston's history. So they just have a new Hefeweizen that just won a, a gold medal at a recent beer competition. It's called Timer after Westheimer. They have the dome foam that harken back to those bygone days of sitting at the Astrodome having a cold beer, but this is a beer that actually has flavor and it's pleasant to drink and of course the nice thing about eighth wonder is that you can go to their brewery in east downtown it's very conveniently located it's the perfect place to go before a dynamo game or an astros game you can have a bite to eat from the each boy's food truck that's always there and have a couple of beers maybe a maybe a dome foam maybe a a haterade their Goza that i find very refreshing because it's got a little bit of tartness to it, or you can can sit for something a little heavier, the Rocket Fuel, their Vietnamese Coffee Porter, or the IPA, their new double IPA that's got 88 IBUs, that nice bitter kick that all you beer people really love. So thank you to 8th Wonder. Interview is up next. I'm joined this week by Mike Raymond, the owner of Reserve 101, downtown bar, a whiskey bar that's celebrating its 10th anniversary, uh, one of my favorite places to drink anywhere in the city. Mike, thanks so much for being here today.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Uh, certainly excited to be a part of uh, this podcast and what you have going on now.
1: <laughs> and uh, we should note that you're you're joining us one day before you flee to New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktail. So thanks, yeah. for, thanks for making the time.
2: Certainly better to be here before than after. <laughs> yeah, the
1: calm before the <laughs> storm, as they yeah, say. Going to be a little groggy. Why don't we just start at the beginning a little bit. What, how did you develop your interest in whiskey? And then what kind of made you feel like you could share that with people in a, in a bar environment?
2: So for me, uh, whiskey started pretty early. Uh, my father was a whiskey drinker. <laughs> uh, so being around whiskey, uh, my dad was a big uh, Seagram 7 Manhattan drinker for forever. And then he changed, and then now he actually doesn't drink at all, uh, part of getting old, I guess. But being around that, uh, I have an uncle who, back in the 80s, was really into uh, homebrew beer. So I got exposed to beer very, very early in understanding how beer was made and the idea of craft beer and that small kind of uh, big flavors uh, coming out of small companies. And then wine. So those three things – being exposed to those things then led to what I call a intellectual curiosity of why did I like this whiskey and not that whiskey? Why did I drink this? Why did I drink that? And then understanding that really all whiskey is is distilled beer aged in a barrel for a period of time. So all those things came together, um, and then roughly around, I'm guessing probably. Late 2006, uh, early 2007, starting to put together the idea of opening up my own bar and and teaming up with my business partner, Steve Long, and looking at the landscape of what the city looked like, what the city we felt needed, and where we were going to open. So we really felt that downtown was going to start coming to life, which sort of kind of has. We're still a long ways to go. Um,
0: yeah, but you're right there by House of Blues, yeah. the Four Seasons, Toyota Center. These are all walking distance to your place. Right, I
1: mean, but I think, House of Blues opened when you... No. Right. They opened about 8, 10
2: months. Uh, Discovery Green hadn't opened yet. But Michael and I worked together, you know, a Around block the and a half, there, you know, the at, strip house. at the Strip House. So we kind of, you know, if you worked at the Strip House back then, you kind of understood the ebb and flow of downtown. That, like... This time of year, is pretty quiet. There's not conventions. There's not a lot going on at Toyota Center. Um, That you kind of understood the ebb and flow. You kind of had a feeling that downtown was coming to life. You know, the the addition of Discovery Green was huge. The addition of the um, Green Street Pavilions with the House of Blues, huge additions to downtown. It brings us a lot. Um, So we really felt that, A, there was no one at the time that was dedicated to whiskey, uh, really, the only thing you had close was Downing Street, which was a cigar bar with spirits that enhanced cigar smokers' experiences. So they had a great scotch collection and cognac and that sort of thing. But no, no one was really dedicated to whiskey. So we saw an opportunity. Well, and...
1: I mean, Poison Girl was open around that time too, right? But but it's they, a they very different environment. They hadn't committed
0: to that bourbon, incredible bourbon list yet. They were still they were just local kinda, Montrose, little hipster place. Yeah, you had Branch Water, which you know was going through all kinds of different ownership and, and commitments on that. But like the the bourbon Renaissance, which I mean what are you looking at? About twelve years ago, ten years. I mean, it's
2: yeah, I but when people then, ask
0: me why is this happened, I I couldn't tell you.
2: Well, there was a perfect storm. So in my You know, the factors that I saw was that at that point, we were in our second renaissance of craft beer. So we started seeing, uh, you know, you saw things like uh, Flying Saucer, you know, just killing it And, and people really getting into the idea of craft beer. And still at that point, we were at the height of the wine bar craze in Houston. So you had people, you know, you had wine bars on every street corner, it felt like, in Houston. So... My feeling was was that the vocabulary to understand whiskey, whether it was scotch or bourbon, was rooted in the same language as craft beer and then in wine. So if you could understand what you liked and didn't like about wine, you could articulate that in whiskey terms. Interesting. And so I kind of felt that, you know, our, our business goes in cycles. So I just kind of felt like whiskey was coming around and that there was an opportunity there. What I didn't factor into it was the um, kind of rebirth of the pre-Prohibition cocktail. And no one really got that right other than the people that were opening up those bars. And the, the desire to have uh, classic cocktails that called for bourbon and called for rye really helped jumpstart that. So you had what I would consider a perfect storm of People that were open to the idea of drinking things that were based on taste and flavor. So we're starting to kind of move away from that vodka, cranberry, vodka tonic kind of crowd and getting into things that you could have a little bit of a deeper conversation about what you're drinking and what you like, what you don't like. And then um, these incredible bartenders that kind of, you know, that again, we're talking about Tales of the Cocktail, launching things like Tales of the Cocktail, um, bringing about The idea of caring about what you drink.
1: Right. This idea of service professionals who treat their job as a career and not as something that they're doing to pay for college between jobs, but really learning about the products that they're serving and and sharing that enthusiasm with their patrons.
0: Yeah. The commitment, like you look at, you know, you look at a place like Anvil, you look at the commitment from ownership down on down. Everyone is committed to really educating themselves and to the extent, you know, that translates to, to the patron itself.
1: Well, and of course the whiskey landscape or the whiskey bar landscape specifically in Houston has shifted. It seems like, you know, every couple of months a new restaurant opens up that talks about their whiskey list. A bar opens with 200, 250, even 300 whiskeys on the wall. What are you doing? How do you sort of stay ahead of the curve and what do you do to make sure that Reserve 101 still stands out?
2: Uh, you know, honestly, I challenge myself every day. Um, you know, I'm a pretty high drive person and I hold myself to a pretty high standard. So whenever we do something, I try to top it and, um, it gets harder and harder. Um, getting access to really cool stuff is tough, but, uh, you know, really when we do barrels, I really, you know, we get people approach us daily, like, Hey, you know, I know you're into buying barrels. Could you buy our barrel? And, we, we, we have a conversation. I said, well, what are you doing? Who else are you selling barrels to? What are you selling them? What are you going to sell us that's going to be really cool and stands out and realize that we operate on a national level, that we want, to, we want cool stuff?
1: Yeah, and that's something that Morgan Weber talked about on the show last week was you know he's got a barrel of whistle pig, He just bought a barrel of Knob Creek 20th anniversary that's going to come out. That Those kind of limited batch exclusive releases are what really help him Keep Eight Row Flint out from the pack. What have you bought recently? What do you have coming? I know, I know you've you've got some big plans for the tenth anniversary celebration.
2: I do. So you know, funny, you know, you bring up uh, Eight Row Flint, and it came to my attention that they bought six cases of our Whistle Pig. So you know, to me, that kind of is a testament of the job that we do in picking barrels. That a, a great bar like Eight Row Flint really digs what what we're doing, and that they have it on their back bar. So, the Whistle Pig uh, came out a few months back. That one was a um, Muscat finished Whistle Pig that originally was going to be used for the Old World. So, the Old World is a blend of three different barrel finished Whistle Pigs, but they essentially aged five different barrels. And Essentially, when Whistlepake kind of approached us about doing a barrel with them, I said, well, I don't want the same 10-year-old that everyone else is doing in town. I, w- I want something cool. And um, so Dave Pickroll was like, hey, I got, I got some things that we, we have that we didn't use. It, it didn't, ended up not working the flavor profile that they ended up going with for Old World. Are you interested? go, yeah, of course. So we have that. Uh, we did a strain of hands that got here a month ago. So it's a three-year-old, single malt, American-made whiskey. Um, Stranahan's is one of the first uh, really to kind of explore the idea of single malt, uh, American-made whiskey. Uh, big chocolate malty flavors. Uh, their stuff usually is a blend of three different ages kind of coming together. So the idea that you're going to then separate one into the three and have it stand on its own. So that's here. That's really cool. Last week, we just got our Weller Antique in. So... Um, you know, there's a few places now starting to do Weller barrels, but what's kind of cool and unique with ours is non chill filtered. Um, for those that don't know, when you bottle whiskey, you go through a little bit of a filtration process to take out some of the um, char and whatnot. But what a lot of places will do is that they'll chill the whiskey. And what that does is that the fats and oils in the whiskey that are making up a lot of that flavor expand. And then they run it through a uh, through a filtration system, and they take that out. And really, the reason they do that is for cosmetic reasons. That you don't want to walk into the liquor store and see a cloudy bottle because you think there's something wrong with the whiskey.
0: Yeah, in the old days, I guess they used caramel coloring. Exactly. Yeah. So I think some of them still do.
2: There's a few out there still do, but not not in bourbon at least. So yeah. what happens though is is that you're taking away some of that flavor. So the the mouthfeel on the whiskey is a lot. Bigger And it has it has a syrupiness to it. So that one we're super excited about. It just got here. And then sometime, uh, you know, it's always kind of hard to guess with these things, but figures late September, early October, we're going to have our makers mark private select.
0: Nice. And,
2: and it's a, just a really incredible program uh, for someone who's been doing this as long as I have to go to a distillery and, and and be impressed and blown away with innovation is kind of hard to imagine. But what they did is that they wanted to get into the barrel program, you know, selling barrels to people. They get a ton of people asking. The issue always with Maker's Mark was their goal is to have everything taste the same. So. They couldn't really sell a, a single barrel to have something unique. You're basically just buying a barrel maker's mark, and no one really – they didn't really like that idea. So what they did was they came up with the idea of make people getting to make their own Makers 46. Makers 46 is fully matured maker's mark, and then they would have a particular stave with char, a French oak stave with a very particular type of char on it, Ten of those staves would go on a ring and float inside the barrel, and then they would do a finish aging for another uh, nine weeks. What they've done is that they, they invited – we're one of the first hundred in the world to go get to do it, so that's definitely kind of a cool thing. So we went out to the distillery, and they go through a whole process where you get to taste what wh- different whiskeys would taste like, what Maker's Mark would taste like with each of these different stave styles. So five different styles of stave. Sounds like
0: R&D is a good thing.
2: Yeah, it's a good day, you know, uh, early, you know, nothing like 8.30, 9 a.m. being at a distillery, drinking whiskey, you know, cast strength whiskey, you know, it's a good way to kickstart your day. Uh, so basically what we got to do, uh, the way it breaks down, there's a thousand or one different combinations that you can come up with. And then over time, what they'll do is they'll retire certain staves and bring in new staves. So there's going to be an ever evolving process. So, we went we, we went through the whole process, came up with a stave combination to create our own maker's mark. This particular one, uh, we actually came up with one that I thought was perfectly balanced and great. And then I modified it by one stave to give it a little bit on the sweeter side.
0: Just out of curiosity, just for those who may not know, you know what a stave is.
2: So a stave is going to be, a, uh, imagine just a sliver of wood. You know, huh. it, it's, a, it's a thin plank of wood. Uh, I would say probably about three-quarters of an inch. These are actually a little bit thinner uh, that go in there. But if you think about how the barrel's made, it's made by putting staves together and then putting uh, rings on it, and, and that's what, that's your vessel so, for your, So for one stave
1: agent. placed in the middle of the liquid has a dramatic effect on the flavor? I mean, you can taste sure. the difference?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so basically what we did, and, and again, there's a little bit of an experiment because what will happen is that after you come up with your stave combination – they figured out, if you, all right, if you take three staves of this, you know, that's so many ounces of what they have that was 100% mature just... Again, it gets a little geeky, but, um, <laughs> you know, basically you get to play master blender with staves. And then, again, what will happen in the aging process, I don't know because there is an element of the unknown, but it's in a climate-controlled environment. It is uh, you know, as controlled as controlled can be, it spends nine weeks. And essentially we wanted something that's slightly on the sweeter side. It stands up if you want it on the rocks, or if you want it neat, but it's really designed for things like an old fashioned or a Manhattan. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty big dump. Uh, if I remember correctly, about 240, 250 bottles will come, will yield out of this. So you're talking about a lot of whiskey.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, a certain amount, I mean, I, I know in your world, probably the preference would be to have people come to the bar and try them. But do any of these hit retail? Do, do people get an opportunity to take so, a bottle of this home?
2: Everything hits retail except for the Whistle Pig, unfortunately. Uh, part of the agreement when we did this, this whole thing with Whistle Pig it was that they wanted zero retail. They didn't want it sitting on a shelf somewhere. Uh, so I know there's some people that, that were a little uh, upset that they couldn't go to the store and buy it. Look, it wasn't us. I, I always kind of treat these things like a partnership with our class B, which is Tony K's off of Bissonnet, um, because we want people taking it home. I can't sell you a bottle of the stuff at the bar to take home with you and have like a souvenir. You know, I think it's a lot cooler than a hat or a T-shirt that you can go buy a you know buy a, a, a cool bottle that you can't get anywhere else. So
1: there's unchill filtered. Weller Miller Antique at Tony K's.
2: Yeah. So the deal with... Well, there was. I forgot. I, I, I talked to Tony K's this morning. So uh, Friday, uh, we put it out there that you could buy it, but it was going to be bought in two packs. Essentially, you could, buy a, you could buy the Weller if you also bought the Strain of Hands. So you can get both bottles. Uh, total, it comes out to be about $75. So pretty reasonable for two pretty cool, you know, one-of-a-kind type things. And supposedly they got beat up pretty good
1: <laughs> already gone
2: i, I don't know I, I i wish i could tell you that yes it's already gone or no it's not already gone but uh there's certainly a lot of them were sold yeah it's,
0: it seems like a, a lot of these high-end places like you can't get pappy in the store or it's a raffle or the habiki, or the suntory now really well, hard to find yeah, yeah and i
1: and i did want to ask you about that i mean there is this kind of overheated it, i don't maybe that's my word for it just because i you know i look at these facebook forums where people buy and sell bourbon i look at the local forums where people talk about bourbon there is this kind of mentality of i gotta buy it now i gotta get it i gotta have it is that good for whiskey do you have an opinion about any of that
2: well i have a few different opinions you know because we just kind of hit a few different areas so. i hope that you would yeah well, i guess that's why i'm here huh Yes. So so when it comes to these, you know, what I call drinking clubs, you know, whether they're online forums. But essentially what happens is the average person, you know, John Q. Public has some buddies. They get together at a place and they hang out and, and kind of each one brings a bottle to the table. And they usually do it at like a cigar place. So there's no TABC issues. You can kind of br- bring your own bottle and they sit there and they talk about if they like it or don't like it. Where my issues and concerns come in is that what ends up happening is that people start confusing opinions with facts. So when we do tastings, we usually bring in a master distiller or a brand ambassador or someone of note that you can have an honest, open conversation about what's going on and why, you know, do you taste this? Yes. Okay. This is why you taste that. So it becomes very educational. Uh, The idea of, Getting facts to people is really important. So I don't care where someone goes to try whiskey, you know, whether it's at a buddy's house, you know, at a barbecue in the backyard, or if they're at another one of the great bars or restaurants in our city, or if they're at reserve, the the big thing is to give you the best information out there and make sure that you're exposed to the right information. Now, when it comes to this craze of whether it's the Van Winkle craze or Japanese whiskey craze. It's good and it's bad, to be honest with you. What happens is is that, you know, if people go out and they get their hands on a bottle and they go to their local liquor store and they get the bottle, I feel very comfortable what they're buying is authentic stuff. But, you know, if you hop on my Facebook page, there's a a couple of guys I'm friends with in Scotland that post about counterfeit bottles. Fake bottles that are being sold on these secondary markets, whether it's an eBay or eBay. Happens in the wine. It happens in the wine rebound. Same thing all that happened in to wine. Too. As soon as wine got really commoditized and became really expensive, uh, then you started having people counterfeit it. Same thing with whiskey now. So what's happening is you know, you have people selling and trading bottles on local forums with no guarantee of what they're trading. There's things that I see all the time, and I'm like, look, this bottle was from XYZ. And there was only so much of that product made in the world. And back then, people didn't collect whiskey. So just the law of averages says what you bought was probably not what you thought you bought. So that's a concern. Uh, You know, for us, we bring in everything through proper channels. You know, we're not... Even though there's things that I can get access to that aren't sold in Texas, I don't bring them in. do fact, I don't even have them at my house. There are some things I have in my house that I pick up in my travels, but even that stuff doesn't come to the bar ever. Um, I can't say that for all places. Uh, I can tell you I looked at someone's whiskey list a couple of days ago, and they had something that I know that was a Kentucky-only, never left the state of Kentucky, that they have on their back bar.
1: And, um, and certainly the TABC would, would look askance at that practice, right? They. There's, there's pretty strict uh, controls about yeah, the way yeah. liquor is sold in Texas.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. Uh, we won't do that. We won't bring it in. You know. So sometimes you know, we wait six, eight months of going through all the hoops of what you need to do to legally carry something in Texas. Now, for other people that do that, they, look, that's their business. It's not my place to tell them how to run their business. I don't care. Uh, but I, I can worry about inside my, my four walls. And I know that you know, we're going to do it the right way.
1: So, but do you ever look at at some of these secondary forums where, say, you know, a bottle from the Buffalo Trake Antiques Collection is going for six hundred dollars, and you know that the retail on that is maybe uh, what 60, a quarter of that? Yeah, yeah,
2: sixty-five, something like that, seventy. Uh, do you, do you yeah. just kind
1: of shrug your shoulders? I mean, do you, you know, at what point? At what point is it worth what someone's willing to pay for it, and at what point is it kind of absurd that someone's spending this kind of money on these on these? Spirits.
2: well and again you know there there's the quite I, I guess when it gets a little you know crazy is how, what did that person do to get that bottle in the first place you know there's some places and and listen you know there's places i know that people will make you know backroom deals so to speak where they'll slip someone you know 100 bucks so they can get access to buy things um you know look, i think
0: some people are attracted to that kind of a tr- intrigue though yeah the idea that you're getting something very special and unique and perhaps, you know, the way the the securest way it got into being in front of them was maybe not entirely legitimate.
1: Well, there's also just the principle of conspicuous consumption, right? You take yeah. that Instagram photo, it's like, look what I got. I got something you don't
2: yeah. have. Yeah. and again, uh, there there there's that element that we've learned ever since we we're a child with, you know, matchbox cars or, you know, baseball cards or something where we're like hey, look what I have. I have this, and you don't. And yeah. now with social yeah. media. You throw
0: social media in, like you yeah. said, Eric, and there right. you and go. I,
1: I almost spent $250 on a bottle of Yamazaki 18 a couple of years ago, essentially so I could brag about it on Facebook. And then I, I put that bottle back on the shelf and realized that's not a good reason to buy a bottle of whiskey.
2: It's really good whiskey, though.
1: It is really good whiskey, but $250 is a lot of no,
2: money. No, I, I liked it when it was $40 uh, 10 years ago, and you couldn't give it away. Yeah. but. People were like
0: Japanese whiskey. Yeah, what's that? Where do they know now?
2: Yeah, yeah. Now you, now you know. People are giving up. And what's
0: what's the next region of 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 whiskey mania?
2: Well, is there one? There is, and there isn't. So Canadians kind of hot right now. Yeah. So Canada, they're coming back. Well, quite frankly, Canada and Canadian whiskey never quite recovered from prohibition, and you know, in the whiskey world, there were some bad decisions made during prohibition so one of those would have been if you're in canada or if you're in scotland you wouldn't send your best product to america you know 50 percent of it didn't make it to the to the location you know you did not want to send something really great and have it you know captured and uh dumped but and
1: and crown royal has probably done i must say it wasn't seagram's edgar brofman
0: and seagram's was one of the the biggest companies of all time until that whole yeah. Debacle with Hollywood and whatnot.
2: So, but yeah, they actually would send inferior product on top of the fact the product would then get cut with who knows what, you know, to, to get a higher yield out of out of that product. So by the so time prohibition th- ended, I was just gonna say, so as prohibition ends and you could actually now buy whatever you wanted legally, did you want to buy Campbelltown Scotch? No. Nope. Did you want to buy Canadian whiskey? Nope. And, and it just left a bad taste in people's mouth.
1: So for people who are looking to kind of get into this because it, it is a little more affordable, are there a couple of Canadian spirits that you have at the bar that people can come try that are a little more affordable?
2: Yeah. I mean, and the beauty of Canadian whiskey and the beauty of Irish whiskey, for the most part, it's really affordable. Um, you know, we're joking about Crown, but the Crown uh, Harvest Rye, Northern Harvest Rye, it was named World's Best Whiskey a year or two ago. Really good stuff. Um, you know, I tried it probably about four months before the award got came out and I tried it's like, man, that's pretty good. And it's like, I don't know if I really have a home for you in my back bar, but it's pretty good. And then they I woke up four months later and opened up uh, social media and saw that they won. It's like, oh, I guess I need better go buy a couple bottles. <laughs> uh but it's really good stuff. Uh I'm a big fan of Forty Creek. Uh and then the Wiser's line. You know, Wiser's real is really making some great stuff. Um Dr. Livermore is, is is a pretty good whiskey maker.
1: And then, in terms of bourbon, where do you kind of start people? You know, if they've been drinking—I mean, God forbid—if they've been drinking like vodka and gin, where do you start them? Hey, don't talk gin. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Well, no, nothing wrong with gin, and really nothing wrong with vodka. But but if you're if you're a drinker who's looking to step up in flavor, or if you're just curious about whiskey because all your friends are drinking it, where do you start off? is it Four Roses? Is it Buffalo Trace? Is it Makers? I mean, how do you sort of ease people in before they commit to some of these pours that are, you know, 15, 20, 30 bucks?
2: Well, <clears throat> for anyone that comes to the bar, we, we base everything on flavor and taste. So we, we take an approach no different than food does. And that's really kind of where we took our cues of if you're going to uh, consume it through your mouth, that you should then think about food. You know, there's a lot of people, you know, and we all have friends that all they drink is Bud Light or Coors Light or Miller Light. And there's nothing wrong with that or vodka or gin or whatever. There's something wrong.
1: I'm willing to say if you're only drinking Bud Light and Coors Light, there's something wrong with that.
2: Eh, well, look, you yeah. know, but this podcast,
1: sh- this interview is sponsored by Eighth Wonder Breweries. So yeah. So there you go. Fair enough. I might be biased. <laughs>
2: uh, but you know, the idea of, you know, if I, if someone came and said, Hey, I only, eat, you know, Jack and Coke fine. Um, and that's all I drink. Cool. Do you only eat a cheeseburger? Is that the only food that you eat every day for every meal? And like, no, that's silly. I would never do such a thing. I'm like, but you're doing that with what you drink. You know, have a chance to explore things. You might find things. You know, people's moods change. You know, people ask me what my favorite whiskey is. I don't know. Whatever's in my glass that day, because that's what I'm feeling. But when it comes for to people getting new into whiskey, Canadian whiskey is a great option. Uh, a product like Nepo Castle, really beautiful single malt Irish whiskey is a really nice place to start. If people have a sweeter palate, if they're really kind of more of that, say, like amaretta sour, kind of apple martini sweet side of things, um, there's a incredible French single malt called Bren that's been uh, aged in cognac barrels that really has some bright fruitiness to it. Now, if you're a big bourbon drinker or a big, you know, smoky scotch drinker, you're not gonna, it's not for you. You're not yeah, get Garrison
0: it. Brothers has that that upfront fruitiness too.
2: Yeah. And and you know, and Garrison Brothers is only going to get better. Um the, his approach to everything is really great. He he did a lot of uh understanding. He, and it's Texas made. It's Texas made the first legal Texas whiskey and on top of being the first bourbon made in Texas. Yeah,
1: are there other Texas products that you can sort
2: of recommend? Oh yeah. Uh so um Iron Root Republic is a new product uh, in the Houston market. Some of the nicest people you'll meet. Uh, they're up in the uh, Denton area of Texas. Uh, Balconies. You can never go wrong with Balconies. The, those guys are really killing it and making some great whiskey. Uh, we're in talks with some fun stuff, too. They, they, we're both celebrating in 2018 uh, 10 years of existence, so that will be kind of fun. Um, you know, Herman Marshall. I really dig Herman Marshall's rye. Uh, the bourbon's great too. Uh, they have a temptress, which was done with the temptress uh, stout beer. Uh, there's no shortage of good stuff coming uh, once the floodgate opened. You know, with Garrison and balconies, uh, it was just a matter of you know, if not when. You All know. right.
1: Well, we're we're running a little long. I, I don't want to, I don't want this to go too out of hand. But I do my last question before we jump into the lightning round. But the last question is. What's next for you? I mean, you've, you've had this bar for 10 years. You've kind of seen downtown kind of come back. Do you look at other neighborhoods? Do you, do you think about other concepts? Would you do like a tequila bar or rum bar? Would you What, what interests you? What, do you? what do you think you want to do?
2: Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a loaded question. Uh, I've been in conversations with a friend of mine uh, who kind of asked, like, hey, you thinking about doing another bar sometime kind of thing. Uh, We've been talking on and off about it. So uh, that may happen. That may not happen. Um, But I can tell you if it does happen, it won't be a single spirit focus. So I'm not going to do like another whiskey bar or rum bar, tequila bar. Uh, I kind of feel like, you know, I've done that for the last 10 years. Uh, In some ways, you know, Reserve kind of holds me back on some of the creative things that I get. I I can't do at Reserve. I, I do push the envelope as much as I can, including push pops with bourbon. But, um, you know, sometimes it's just trying to put a square peg in a round hole. So, uh, part of me feels like, yeah, doing something else neighborhoods, uh, you know, to be honest with you, if the right space came along, which is getting harder and harder to do in this city, uh, with the influx of growth of bars and restaurants, you know, I think we're still on pace for, uh, like 10 a week for one, one closing. <laughs> so it's pretty insane. Uh, so there's that, um, I certainly have interest in, in writing. Uh, so right now I kind of have my dip in my toe in about as many different buckets as possible and just kind of seeing what really sparks me. Um, right now, uh, as we're hitting a milestone birthday for reserve, I'm starting, it's a good time to start making some changes. So we have an incredible staff right now. Um, so i I'll start, kind of stepping back a little bit on the day-to-day stuff. Uh, right now I'm there about six days, six to seven days a week. So usually I work about three weeks straight without a day off and then take a day off. So the hopes and dreams and goals would be to get to maybe four days a week at reserve uh, so I can have a couple extra days to, you know, A, take care of myself mentally and physically and, and, and be able to function at, a, still function at a high level. I'm getting a little bit older and slowing down. But then, you know, I, knowing myself and, and just my internal drive to keep wanting to do things, something else is coming. What it is, I don't know yet, but something's definitely coming.
1: All right. Well, let's we'll put a pin in it there. You ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. Five easy questions. Okay. Just say whatever comes to mind. First bar or restaurant you ever worked at?
2: Uh, I'm trying to remember the name now. It was 28 years ago, a small uh, white tablecloth Italian restaurant in north, northern New Jersey first concert you ever went to beach boys favorite houston sports figure past or present wow that's a tough one um you know i probably have to say jj i mean jj Watt is really something else uh incredible ambassador for our city uh best new restaurant you've tried recently like in the last six months that's almost a joke because I, i go nowhere um, uh, that's the downside of why I need days off. Um, uh, man, couldn't even tell you to be honest with you. I couldn't even tell you if I went to a new restaurant in Houston in the last six months. We've got to get you out more. Yeah, I know. All right.
1: Last one. Where's your favorite taco in Houston?
0: Ooh,
2: you know, I, 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 do kind of dig tacos a go-go and I haven't been there in a hot minute.
0: Always great after the continental club.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I'd probably spend, you know, a vast part of my time hanging out on the back patio at Continental Club. Um, You know, I think people have this delusion that bar owners have, you know, just kind of hang out and do nothing all day. But, you know, if if that was a reality, hanging out, having Lone Stars and tacos, you know, over at Continental Club wouldn't wouldn't be a bad place. Great local music and great, just great music. All right, Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We can follow you on Twitter, Whiskey
1: Revolt, and of course, reserve101.com for all of the goings on at the bar, all of the tastings, all of the classes, all of the 10th anniversary celebrations. Uh, Mr. Fulmer, thank you. Great to be here. Thanks. I know you guys at the Houston Barbecue Festival have an event coming up. Why don't you tell the people yeah, about it's,
0: it? It's not till September. It's September 24th. But it's worth noting now because tickets are almost sold out. This is the, the Houston Barbecue Throwdown, the third one. And that will be 14 area barbecue places doing the next great single barbecue dish. And what gets served to the du- judges gets served to everyone there. And uh, we've got less than 100 tickets left. That's September 24th. And you can only get those at HOUBBQ.com.
1: And of course we can follow you on Twitter at Fulmer, F U L M E R and on Instagram at MS Fulmer. You can follow me on Twitter at E Sandler on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culture for all the latest bar and restaurant news. And of course you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes coming soon to Google play and Stitcher. I've been promised by the people in charge of these things, uh, We always appreciate your comments and reviews, but like Katie Nolan says, only if it's five stars and only if it's nice. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.